This episode is a bonus episode of Carcone Carne. It's also not recorded in my car. Here's the thing. I was looking at bands coming through Chicago over the next couple of weeks, and I saw that Candlebox was going to be at the Arcata Theater opening for Buck Cherry on September 14th. And that reminded me of the fact that I talked to Kevin Martin about four years ago. Kevin Martin, the lead singer of Candlebox, and it was a perfectly great chat. Not a lot of people got to hear it, so I thought I would bring it back. We had time, space, and availability on the Yak Channel Podcast Network, yakchannel.com. So I decided to post this now. It's a bonus. It's me talking to Kevin Martin back in 2012, and we started by talking about what was a then-new Candlebox album. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show, James Van The new album is Love Songs and Other Musings. You recorded this one in between tours. Does that mean this was a quick process, or is this one that you could labor over? Well, we we actually had written um, we had written some of the songs uh, through throughout the spring, gearing up for it. We weren't sure when time is going to be uh, available to scheduling for working with Ken. Um, so when it just so happened that he had that whatever sixteen seventeen days in between um, our tours. Uh, we jumped right at the opportunity because we didn't we didn't want to miss working with him. So it just kind of fit where he had like 20 days, we had 17 days between you know tours. So uh, it worked, and um, we got in there, no pre-production. We just went right into um, the studio and started working. And that's kind of how we work best, anyways. We work a lot uh, a lot better as a band under pressure. We wrote actually three of the songs on the record were written in the studio uh, while we were there. So um, I guess we. Like doing what we've been doing long enough, we know how to do it. I, I read somewhere you said something to the effect of this album isn't what you'd expect from Candlebox, but I don't know. Listening to it, I hear a lot of songs that sound pretty consistent with your sound and history. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, I think for the, the I guess you're well, you're obviously a, um, a radio personality, and you understand the, um, the the tones and the I guess the familiarities of a band. Um, but for the fans that that uh, grew up with the first record, you know, they always kind of expect that uh, that rock song um, of you or don't you or or Arrow or, or or that kind of thing. And they don't really remember the the blossoms and the cover me's and those types of songs or the he calls home, like the, the I guess the more melodic musical side of Candlebox. So when we released this record, um, it, you know, we got a lot of the fans going, well, you know, where's the rock? And it's like, well, there's three rock songs on this record. I'm, I'm not really sure where you're missing it. So um, it's just a, it's a little bit different record for us in that sense that we went more for the pop melodic side of of the band and, and kind of where I've been allowing myself to go as a listener to music over the past few years. I've been hugely influenced by Spoon uh, and inspired by uh, his songwriting. I think he's brilliant. Um, and a lot of the new stuff that's out there, the Arcade Fires and whatnot, I think is uh, is where music's headed. So if this is our version of that, um, I guess that's kind of what I meant by that, is that people would not be getting that record of, of those kind of heavy rock songs that they expect of us. Uh, although from the, from the get-go on this new album, you come out rocking with Youth in Revolt. I mean, this is straight up, this is pure rock and roll. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's well. That was a song that was written um, inspired entirely by what was going on in uh, in Egypt um, a couple of years ago, and, and uh, the uprising of the the kids and that are being, um, I guess, realizing that they're they're being oppressed and, and the, the world outside of them is being hidden from them. Um, I didn't expect that song to come out the way it did on the record. I actually had it a little bit more um, of a blues style, um, but we just really kind of dug in with that track and. It was actually supposed to be a B-side, and, and um, everybody liked the song so much, and they wanted to lead the record with it, I think because they wanted those listeners that expected that of us. Uh, you know, again, that's a label decision when it comes to that sort of thing, not really mine, but um, you know, I think they wanted to be able to grab people right away with that type of a song and then ease them into the rest of the record. So I guess that's kind of why that's there. You know, It's not what I would have done um, with the album, but again, it's, I, I really love that song, and, uh, uh, and I'm glad it made the record. And see, this shows you what I know. I listened to that song. I thought, oh, it's a song about lust, opening up a, a song about, or an album of love songs. I hear, let's do something we'll regret. Let's do something that makes us sweat. I'm thinking that's like a come on, but I'm, I couldn't have got that more wrong. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah. Youth and Revolt is, uh, you know, have you ever seen the movie Youth and Revolt? I've never seen it. It's a funny film. It's uh, Michael Sarney, and he, you know, he plays that kind of creates an alter ego for himself so that he can be cool in the eyes of a woman. Um, ends up blowing up a, a small town, and you know, it's it's a relatively um, funny movie. And and uh, I thought, God, what a great title! And then, of course, when everything was going on in in Egypt and whatnot, I was like, you know, this is a perfect title for a song like that. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't really have that kind of. Um, uh, to me, I, I excuse me, I never would have thought of it that way, but um, it's kind of funny that you did. I suck. All right, let's talk about another one of the rock songs. <laughs> let's jump right ahead to "Lifelike" song. I mean, this is a crunchy, bluesy basher of a song. Uh, where did the, was this one of the songs? I, I've got to wonder that you kind of made up in the studio as you went. Yeah, this is one of the songs that we we had a, a different version of this song. Um, we had a guitar pattern that Pete had sent down to us. Uh, we live in Los Angeles, um, Adam and Sean and myself and Pete and Scott still live in Seattle. And he had sent a, uh, a little bit different version of the riff to me about, I'd say probably January or February of, of last year. And, uh, I was like, I, I like it, but it's, it's not, it's not really grabbing me. So I so said, let's work on it when you come down to LA and, and, uh, and we'll do some rehearsals and we've kind of forgot about it. So when we got in the studio, um, the guys were having lunch and I went in and, um, started playing guitar. I was like, oh, I remember that song Pete had. And I started kind of just trying to figure out how would Jimi Hendrix have played this song? Um, because I'm, I'm a really terrible guitar player, but I, it's, I guess it's that, um, it's my infant style, infantile style of playing where I can kind of find those things that I'm looking for uh, when I when I go for a song like this. So I kind of started knocking it out and Pete came in and he said, what are you playing? I said, well, that's that riff of yours. And I was trying to figure out how we could turn it into something a little more bluesy like uh, our first record, that song Rain that we did. I wanted something that was kind of really went after it. So he, he grabbed the guitar and an hour later we had that song and, and um, that's you know kind of how we work. We, we, we tend to stumble on those kinds of motions and, and emotions and moments in, in our music where we end up going, well, that's really great. And that's exactly what we needed to do. And like I said, that's how we work best in the studio. And, and that is one of those ones that was done in an hour. Uh, 
that the sonic opposite of that song would be Turn Your Heart Around. The, uh, yeah. the, the lyrics to that song, I mean, here's a very plaintive, piano-driven song. The lyrics sound very personal. Are, are you storytelling, or is this something that I, or based on an experience you had? Yeah, it's very, it's very personal. It's very storytelling. It's, I wrote that song, Chris Daughtry. Um, and uh, I wrote it a couple years ago for the record, and we never really got around to using it. Um, and then when we sat down to, to do this record, uh, I said, I want to do this song in a, in a little bit more um, emotive way, in more of a Candlebox way, because the way I wrote it initially with Chris, I thought he was going to use it for his record, um, and he didn't. So I called him and said, hey, I know you, you didn't use that track. Do you mind if I do? And he said, no, it's cool. The way we wrote it was we both were on the phone uh, with our wives. Um, I had just come back from tour, and he was in Los Angeles writing um, and working with other artists, and we both were kind of getting those phone calls um, where, you know, where have you been? What's, you know, you're different when you come home every time. And, you know, we understand it as human beings, as what we do in our lives. When we go away on the road and we come home after six months or six weeks or four weeks or whatever, yeah, we're different because we've just been stuck in a tube uh, with 12 other human beings for you know, day in and day out doing the same crap. We don't know who we are when we come home for the first, you know, two weeks. Um, and, you know, women don't really kind of understand that lifestyle. And, and so that song, I took kind of that conversation that I was having with my wife and I knew Chris was having with his wife because I think they were pregnant at the time with the twins that they just had. Um, and those emotions that kind of come up and we, we started utilizing all those words that we would feel um, – the conversation would head into if, uh, let's say, the relationship were to fall apart. So we started from our own perspective uh, of what we were dealing with and ended up with maybe the story of somebody else's life. And this is actually a good segue. You're talking about you being on the road and how it kind of alters you. Time kind of stands still when you're in the tube with 12 guys. You come home. Now you have something to ground you when you come home. You're a dad. And that le yeah. leads me to Believe in It, which is the single from the album. How much has being a father changed being Kevin Martin, frontman of big rock band Candlebox? And 100%. I mean, it's it's been the greatest gift of my life. I... You know, I thought for the longest time that music and and touring and being, you know, a rock star and Rolling Stone magazine and all that stuff was so important. Because, um, you know, you, you you believe it when you're a kid. You know, you, you see it. You, I was a huge fan of Kiss and always wanted to be that kind of person. And then you have a kid and you just realize that it's, the world is so much bigger than you. Um, and you've, you've got these crazy responsibilities. And how much they look up at it, it, it look up to you, and, and the way they look at you sometimes is just confusion. And and you know when he says to me, Dad, I want you to come home. I don't want you, you know, I don't want you making music right now. Uh, it, that's just the hardest thing in the world. Um, so it's made me a more, I guess, it's made me more realistic um, as to who I am and and the type of world I live in and what I'm going to leave. If my legacy, you know, it's kind of, I've always thought that was a funny thing to say, you know, what's my legacy going to be? But, you know, what am I going to leave Jasper? What, what am I going to leave him with as a young man when he gets to be, you know, my age when I started Candlebox 20 years old? Where, where's he going to go? What's he going to believe in? What's he going to know? What's he going to want? Um, 
is he going to have the same passions as myself or my wife? Um, and it's in, and, and I was always told that everything I did by my father, you know, he said, listen, if you're going to do this, you have to do it 110%. You cannot go back. When I just, when I told him I wasn't going to college, um, you know, I was going to do this music thing. And, and, and he said, you know, you're not going to have anything to fall back on, but if you're going to do this music thing, you have to do it 110%. And luckily, luckily, Countervox was successful. Um, because to this day, you know, I, I still don't know what I would be doing. You know, I, I, I have no idea. And I really want Jasper to to understand that. And that's what the song is about. You know, it's going to start with love and patience. Your whole life is going to be about that. You know, um, you have to you have to have love for yourself and those people around you. And you have to be patient with, with the world because it's it's not going to be easy. Um, but you've got to go after it. And when you do go after it, um, things will things will happen for you and you will, you will uh, succeed in ways that you have no idea you would ever have been able to succeed in. I hate to say it, but that's kind of a simple lesson. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just... Hey, uh, I'm here all night, or at least for a couple more minutes. Um, speaking of simple lessons, uh, change, cover me, you, far behind, you re-recorded the, the, the classic Candlebox songs, the songs you're most known for, for this album. Is this just a, like a rights issue where you just wanted to basically own something that you can sell? Uh, well, because... there's, two, there's yeah, there's two parts to it. Um, it is that, but it's also the same thing. We were we were asked to do um, Far Behind and You for Guitar Hero magazine or uh, mm-hmm. guitar is it a game Guitar Hero game. I can't remember what any of those things are. I don't play them. But um, wait, you go on yeah. the road? I don't I, play I video that, games. I thought that's all touring bands did was play video games. No, no, no. I I got no time for that crap, man. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm too old for that too. Um, I tried the Wii workout thing. I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, so no, we, they, they had asked us to do those two songs for the game. And, um, and so we did them. And in the process of doing those, um, our manager called and said, you know, you have re-record uh, rights now. And if you guys do these, we can release them in countries that, that you never released the songs in. And you can do it on your own and you can release them to whoever and you can license them whatever and you don't have to ask Maverick or uh, Warner Chapel for the rights to do so, would you be interested in doing some more songs? Uh, and let's see if we can't just build a catalog. In. And, uh, and we're like, sure. Um, that was really difficult, though, because it, it was the, it, the hardest thing in the world is to remember how you did those songs. And we don't have any of that gear. We don't have the PV, uh, VTM 120 head that Pete was playing. We don't have the Marshall Mosfet head that we played. Uh, it's not the same bass player. You know, I mean, it's the drum set's gone that we used. Um, the studio's different. The microphones in the studio are different. I mean, the whole thing was a real challenge and a real learning experience for us to see if we could go back 20 years uh, and capture those songs the way that they had initially been captured. And, you know, we, we didn't want to do them exactly like the album. Um, they have kind of that newer um, flair to them with some of the stuff that we were doing uh, in the shows, like Simple Lessons has the guitar solo in it uh, that it didn't have on the album, which um, I've always thought, you know, that record should have had a guitar solo in it because we've been doing it live that way for, you know, 15 years. Um, so that was something I was excited about. And, and uh, but yeah, relearning how to sing that way. I don't even sing that way anymore. I'm, I'm not that same voice. Um, it's just a, it was a, it was a real, it was a fun learning experience about ourselves and our talents as musicians. Looking back to those early days, as things were just starting to explode, the Seattle scene, the, the storied Seattle scene, 
it was just insane. And you were never the Seattle darlings. And I think about the experience here in Chicago where the, the scene just devoured bands. It, it propped bands up. It destroyed other bands. Was Did the Seattle scene give you drive to kind of surpass what was going on there? Um, it didn't really give us drive to surpass it. What, what I think happened to us was because, you know, like you said, we weren't the darlings there. Um, and everybody really forgets in the Seattle scene, like I've read a couple of these books out, Everybody Loves Our Town, and, you know, there's books that are supposedly about the Seattle scene. Everybody kind of takes a stab at us in there. And, and the thing that's really funny about it is we were five and six years younger than all those bands. So when they were 19 years old, playing at the Central or Metropolis or, Gor- or Gorilla Gardens in any of these places, um, I was in high school, you know, playing in, playing drums in a punk band uh, that couldn't go play at a bar because I didn't have a car. And, you know, and, and you know, so it's like, kind of like, oh, well, here comes Candlebox. Well, yeah, because we're fucking 21 years old, you know. It's like, and we're, you guys are 27, 26. It just... It really kind of bothered us. So for us, it was like, you know what, fuck you, we'll do it on our own. And that's what we did. And, and over the years, it's really, it's really kind of made us uh, a better band for it. Because, you know, even though we, we took a break in 2000 to 2006, and logistically, the reason that we took that break was um, because of Maverick Records and Warner Brothers and the bullshit there. Uh, when we got back together, we were a better band. And, and we still were able to play those songs, and we were still able to sell out shows and and go play in those marketplaces that we had done, you know, huge business in, in the nineties. So, you know, Seattle, as much as I love that city, I, I could, you know, I, I could really care less if any of those musicians ever call me and say, Hey, I love your fucking record. You know, it, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make me a better musician. It wouldn't make me a happier person. You know, I just would be like, Oh, okay, well, thanks. You know, uh, where were you 20 years ago when, when we could have had a tour with you, you know, it would have been a lot of fucking fun, but exactly. one of those things. Speaking of the breakup, after that happened, and what a, you know, it wasn't by your own account, it wasn't really a personnel thing that led to the breakup. Did you look back after that, after 2000, and say, oh shit, what have we done? Like, did you think a horrible mistake was made? No, I, I knew it was what had to happen. Um, it was the only way we could get out of the contract with Maverick. Um, but the, the, what, what I do regret uh, is not being able to. Um, work with Pete and Barty and Scott I, because the decision I made to, to how I got terminated from Maverick Records um, so that I could so that we could get out of the contract that that didn't allow us to work together until the logistics of, of our contract was worked out with Maverick Records. So that was what I regretted because I could have been smarter about it. I didn't have to be such a jackass. Uh, you know, I mean, I knew what they were trying to do and, and it was very childish of me. Um, it got me what I wanted, but in the end, it really, it, it kind of ruined things for us for five years. And, and that sucked, you know? Um, but at the same time, we wouldn't have been able to do anything as Candlebox. We would have had to come up with a different name to, to keep working. And, you know, those contracts are, yeah, they're, they're shitty, you know? And, and (laughs) I tell bands all the time, don't sign those types of deals. You know, it's, because there's always going to be something in there that's going to keep you guys, you know, like you said, there's, there's so many great Chicago bands that are not able to do anything because of bad contracts, you know, but people don't know. And it just sucks because, you know, you're a kid, you don't know any better. And, uh, so, you know, 
it, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, you know, and, and I, I love these guys to death, and I'm glad we're making the music we're making now. And, and um, you know, we probably needed that break. And like I said, you know, the nice thing about now, when we go and do stuff, um, we know better than to allow ourselves to get run down emotionally, physically, and mentally with with one another. Um, we know that when we need to take a break, we need to take a break, um, and and not let people uh, work us to the point where we can't see straight. Based on what you're saying, we're in no immediate danger of another breakup at any time soon. No, no, not at all. I, I kind of feel, I've always had the, the feeling that once a band has a hit or two, they could actually tour forever if they wanted to. You can. I mean, look, it's, <laughs> we're a perfect example. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. But speaking yeah. of touring, I'm looking at the itinerary that's public. Through the month of May, you're not coming through Chicago. Do you have plans? Yeah, we come. We go back through Chicago. Uh, I believe in like July we're coming through the city because we we got to do that Midwest run again, um, all the way down. So we'll start probably start meet up in Nashville, go up Chicago, and then fill in those dates and head down to the south from there. Nice. Okay, so we'll keep our eyes out for the formal announcement of that. And I got I got to ask you. You mentioned Loving Kiss and. That got me thinking, the first record I ever bought, that I bought as a child with my own money, was Rock and Roll Over by Kiss. And I, thinking about that, I thought, hey, I wonder what Kevin Martin's first album was. Well, Rock and Roll Over, that was a great record. Um, I love that band so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, the first record I ever bought, um, I believe, was um, Love Gun. And I remember my mom coloring in all the girls with the Sharpie that's on the bottom. Awesome. And I was furious. And that's why I bought it, you know. I was Yeah. I was whatever, I was eight years old and, and you know, I had just earned enough money to I was mowing lawns in the neighborhood to kinda of earn money and I bought that record. My mom was like, No, you did not And uh yeah, so she colored it in. That was the first record and then from that moment on I learned how to buy things without my mother seeing it. All right, so Kevin, the new album is Love Songs and Other Musings. You are tenacious, you are rock and roll, we love your band, and we cannot wait to see you uh, come July-ish. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. And that wraps up a bonus episode of Carcone Carne with Candlebox, something from the archives. And thank you for listening. If you want to hear more, you can go to carconecarne.com or yakchannel, Y-A-K channel. Com. Next up on Carcon Carne, coming this Monday, it'll be an interview with Noise FM. The Noise FM, they are a band from Chicago. They are awesome. Uh, we talk and go for tacos. That's next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>